Take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. This will be the first lesson in this series on this third chapter. I've entitled it, the, because the title comes from what Paul says down in verse 10. To the extent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known, might be known by the church. Now this is what's to be known by the church. The manifold wisdom of God. Think about that. The manifold wisdom of God. That's this, this lesson to be the manifold wisdom of God, part one. Yeah, I think when I think about this, everything that has to do with the Christian life has absolutely nothing to do with our abilities or our skills or our talents. The gospel and the reality of the gospel and our understanding of the gospel is not something that we work up. I mean, so many people seem to be of the opinion that if they get a Bible or they get a set of commentaries or they begin to study fervently and, and they continue to pray that somehow, some way, they'll figure it out. Listen, you can't figure this out. This is not math. This is not science. This is not English. The Scriptures make it clear. In this matter of salvation, it is a pure matter of sovereign, divine revelation. He has to reveal himself to you. Our Lord Jesus Christ said to his apostles, you know, they asked him, why do you speak in parables? And he told them, I speak unto you in parables because it's not given unto them to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but unto you it's given. And then he said this, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Now, did they, were they more sincere? Did they use more means? Were they somehow more mentally adept? No. What had been given to them? Same thing's given to every one of God's children. I mean, you think about it. Before the Lord God reveals himself to us and in us, what are we? We're dead. How dead? Graveyard dead. Necros is the word. We saw that back in Ephesians chapter 2. Unable to think toward God, approach toward God, desire God. I mean, there's a website out there by a reform group. Name the name of name of the website is Desiring God. Listen, by nature you don't desire Him. <laughs> now we do. We do, but it's not according to our free will, and it's not according to any effort that we put forward. It's His mercy and His grace by which He draws us to Himself and keeps us, keeps us to himself. Now you think about this as we begin this, this series. The manifold wisdom of God, it, it's magnified as we see the infinite distance that's recorded in the scriptures to which God has exalted these Gentile believers. Now that's, we're, we're talking about a letter written by Paul, not to Jews. Though he does speak of the Jews in it, he did speak of the Jews in Ephesians chapter 2, but written specifically to Gentiles who had believed the gospel. And when we're talking about the manifold wisdom of God, it's exalted in that we see the distance that those who were formerly dead in trespasses and sins are exalted to. Think about where we're at now. Think about where these people were at. Prior to 
regeneration and conversion, prior to the Lord revealing himself to them by his grace, they, you and me too, before the Lord revealed himself to us, we were under the guilt, under the penalty, and under the condemnation of sin, as well as under control of Satan. Huh? All of us. By nature, these Gentile believers at Ephesus, what were they? Formerly, they were idolaters. Now, they were worshiping Diana and all those old false gods over there in that part of the world. But then the Apostle Paul could identify with this because Paul himself, even though he claimed that he was worshiping Jehovah God, what was he worshiping? He too was an idolater. I, I, that's one of the things that just religious people cannot accept. They, they can, you can say to religious people, talk about, well, you might, you might have sinned because you've taken a sip of alcohol or you smoke a cigarette. But I tell you, if you infer that they're idolaters, through their religion, you wait and see what their wrath is toward you. They'll tolerate a lot of things. What's well, a southern word? Isn't it? <laughs> they'll tolerate a lot. I don't mean, they will. They'll tolerate a lot of things. But when you go to talking about that, everything that they've done, everything that they've said, every prayer that they prayed, every religious effort that they put forth, that they put it forth to a God that cannot save. And in fact, is an idol just as much as Buddha or Allah or any other old false idolatrous god. <gasps> no! I believe and worship Jesus. Well, again, Paul says there's another Jesus. If you, if you believe another Jesus or another gospel, you see that? People say, you, you don't need to make those distinctions. We must make these distinctions. This is what separates God's children from this world. Listen, there's no way that we, as justified saints, redeemed by the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ by His very obedience unto death, can entertain or give the idea to those that we love in this world that we are, in fact, worshiping the same God and trusting in the same Christ. You say, well, they, they'll get angry at me. Well, they got angry at our Lord. And we're going to see this in just a moment. The only reason Paul was persecuted, the only reason John was on Patmos, the only reason they beheaded Peter, stoned Stephen, what was it for? Was it because they were moral, sincere, dedicated, committed, religious? No. The gospel that they declared. And see, the gospel that they declared, what did it reveal? It revealed that everything other than Christ and His blood and His righteousness alone, what is it? It's dead works and fruit unto death. And so they said what? We'll kill you for it. And it's the same with us. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ said, if they hated me, what, who are they going to hate too? As I think about that a lot of times. I, yeah, I mean, think about these things. They, they, either it's true or cor this is either true or false. When James said, know ye not friendship with the world is enmity against God. What do you mean by that? Huh? 
When he tells us, love not the world, neither the things that are of the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, these are not of the Father, but what are they? They're of the world. What's he talking about? Well, that means you, you can't go to picture show. <laughs> no, no, wait. You can't go to the cinema. Let me come up into the 21st century. You can't go to a play. I mean, I read a lot of these old Puritan authors, you know, way back in the day. Boy, they, they were so hung up on being down there watching Shakespeare. Oh, they lost their mind over there. You know, you can't entertain anything like that. Oh, God. I get sick of people, and I, and I, I don't advocate for it. Listen, the Scriptures teach temperance. And things indifferent. They do not teach abstinence. He makes it very clear. Be not drunk with wine. You hear that? What, what are you not to be? Be not drunk with wine. I, 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 remember when false religion? You know, I, I remember it quite well. <clears throat> what did we use in the Lord's table? Huh? Most Baptist churches that you know, what do they use in the Lord's table? Welch's grape juice. Why? And, and you can hear some of the stupidest arguments. They say, I've heard, I had a guy tell me a couple of weeks ago, he said, the wine that they used back then didn't have the alcoholic content that wine has today. Balooey! <laughs> So, yeah, you, you take those arguments to the nth degree. Our Lord made water into what? By their standard, grape juice. And so this foolish guy came to our Lord and he said, most people wait till everybody's drunk. You know, they, 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 they don't bring out the good wine at the end. They bring it out when? At the beginning. And he said, but you've waited till the end to bring out the best. Now, our Lord wasn't advocating drunkenness. It was a miracle that confirmed it was an act of creation like we've talked about in our Wednesday night study. God could create Christ as God. What can he do? He could create. Just like when he turned the bread and broke the bread and the fishes, that was a miracle of creation. It wasn't just a miracle of multiplication. But you get people in this line of thought that says, I have never in my life had a sip of alcohol cross my lips. Well, I tell you what, you carry that to the true and living God as a standard of your justification, eternal life. Now, you say, oh, the preacher, you're saying we can get drunk. I have not said you can get drunk. Did you not hear what I said a moment ago? Be not drunk with wine. Right? There are things that you and I... Do you eat pork? Do you mow your grass on a Sunday? Huh? Do you abide by those old Sabbath laws? Are you under the law? Or are you under grace? Saw something written... I think it was week before last, I kind of lose track of time, said that, that we're dead to the law as far as our justification is concerned, but the moral law 
is the means of our sanctification before God. Me and Nathan Chapelier were talking about that this week. Do you realize how foolish that is to make that statement? Huh? That, you know what that implies? The law can't justify you. So you have to go to Christ for justification. But now that which cannot justify you, which that word justify, which I think the, the, the English word is what has gotten us into a lot of problems that we're into with some of these man-made theologies that have come up in our time. The word translated justify and righteous and just and holy, several other words along that line, clean, pure. You know what they mean? They mean righteous. So the law can't make you righteous. Paul made that clear in Acts chapter 13, verse 38 and 39. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that by this man is preached unto you what we need. What do we need? The forgiveness of sins. And by him, all believing, all who have been brought to believe, are justified, made righteous, declared righteous, viewed as righteous, made righteous. All, of the, all that believe are made righteous. Ugh. Justified from all things from which you could not be made righteous by the law of Moses. You see that? So the law couldn't make justify, couldn't make me righteous. But now, after I've rested in Christ for my righteousness, that law that couldn't justify me, now what can it do? They say. It can make me righteous. It must be making me righteous. I must be living under it. I must be seeking to... And don't get me wrong. We seek to improve, do we not? I want, by God's grace, to love Him perfectly and completely as much as I can all the time. And you do too if you're a child of God. I want to love my neighbor. I want to be forgiven and kind and compassionate to men and women. And I strive to. But tragically, like Paul said, the good I want to do, I don't do, and the evil I, find, evil I don't want to do, that's exactly what I find myself doing. Power, the willingness is there. The power to do it is impossible. It's impossible. But men get off on all those things. You know, that, like those things are important. I've said this before and I will continue to say it as long as I have a, a tongue in my mouth and a, an ability to control my mind. That the only way you can ever get sin out of this world, you've got to take man out of it. I'm going to tell you what, there, there, is not, there is not one thing in this world. You hear me? Now, this is going to make some people mad, but I don't care. There is not one thing that has ever existed on this earth that is sinful in and of itself. It has been made sinful how? Us. Huh? Perfect man in a perfect place. In perfect communion with God. Like Henry used to say, 
without a picture show or a pool hall or a cigarette machine. <laughs> That's from back in the 60s and 70s. And yet he plunged all of us without anything that men consider sinful. What did he plunge us all into? Sin and death. All of us. You think about it. These people, these Gentiles, these, these Ephesian Gentiles, and we can find ourselves in them because you and I are Gentiles by nature. They were active idolaters. They were without Christ, he said in chapter 2. They had no hope because there was no gospel preached to them as a, as a nation. You think about it prior to when Paul came along. Find me there, a great number of Gentiles anywhere that came to believe the gospel. And he said in chapter 2, they were without God in this world. But now he looks at them and now he says to them, now having been regenerated, having been converted by God the Holy Spirit, these who were formerly enemies in their minds by wicked works, they are exalted into the family of God. Huh? Do you ever think about that, that statement John made in 1 John chapter 3? Turn over there. See, these are the things that you know, what's everything just, what's everything pure, what's everything are good. Think on these things. Well, here's something you need to think on. And we don't think on this enough. We think too much about what we've done instead of what Christ did. Behold, verse 1, 1 John 3, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. You see, they, he's freely given it. He's bestowed it. We didn't ask for it. We weren't seeking it. He just gave it. What's he given us? That we should be called, what are we called? Sons of God. All of us were raised under this false idea notion concerning every single man, woman, child that's ever been born, who are we all? We're all God's children. Folks, that's not even scriptural. <laughs> now, we are all the creation. There ain't, there ain't nothing living and breathing that wasn't given life by God. We know that. But I know this much. There's children of the Father, children of God, and there's the children of the devil. Two groups. They've always existed. And there's never been one change teams. That's all I know to put it. You, ain't, you, you, didn't, you, you didn't come out of the family of Satan and get yourself somehow into the family of God. Because you are sons, Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4. Because you are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Why? Because you are sons. But he tells us that we should be called the sons of God. And see, this is what lets me know there's a distinction between what his children are and what this world is. Because notice what he says next. Therefore, because we are the sons of God, the world knows us not. That word knows, it's that same word means loves us. It's an intimate relationship between a man and a woman that results in a child. 
Uh-huh. Can't get much more intimate than that. It knows us not because why? It didn't know him. And that brings me back to that original statement where I started 15, 20 minutes ago. Friendship with the world's enmity against God. Now that don't mean we go out and break every relationship. I've got friends in the world just like you've got friends in the world. I've got a dear man that, that I, I, I love him like a, as, as much as a friend can love a friend on this planet. And I like to talk with him, and we laugh and cut up. He's up in Colorado, and me and him talk on the phone all the time, especially during football season. And that's how we got to be friends. And we never, we, we never, he, he's, he's completely devoid of religion. He doesn't, his, his father was, it was a, I think his father was a preacher, but he just, he doesn't care about religion. So we don't bring it up. We talk about everything in the world. You say, oh, you can't be that way. No, I'll tell you what, I, I, I follow the persuasion. If he ever asks me, Kenny, I'll tell him. But I'm not going to force it down his throat. I'm not, the, I'm not the, the, his world's not on fire, and I'm not the only one that's got a bucket and can put it out. And it's not that I'm afraid of losing him as his friend. I wait, I wait for people to ask me. And if they really want to know, I'll tell them. If they really don't want to know, I don't ever tell them. Because I'm going to tell you what, if they don't really want to know and you tell them, I'll tell you what the end result's going to be. Number one, they're either going to hate you. Number two, they're not going to have anything to do with it. And you'll see, you'll see what the result is of their idea. They want you to enforce their their position or confirm them in some profession and when you don't give them the confirmation they want, you know what they do? They go away. But you cannot, you, you cannot make the intimate relationships of this earth be with those that are of this world. You cannot and you must not be it family, friend, or foe. If any man, let's think, if any, think about what he, it's our Lord. If any man love father, mother, brother, sister more than me, you know the rest. Not worthy of me. Which is the most important? I think that's, that's, the, that's the point. If we realize what God's done for us in Christ, he is of the greatest value in all things. He takes precedent over my wife, over my sons, over my daughter-in-law, over my grandchild, over my friends, especially those that are of the world. Even my, he takes precedent even over my brothers and sisters in Christ. But we, what are we to do? We're to love one another. Hey, we've been going through John, and one of the things that John uh, on, in our Wednesday night uh, Zoom Bible study, one of the things that John has kept emphasizing is this, by this shall all men know you are my disciples. How do they know that we are his disciples? We love who? Not the world. Because he's already said love not the world. Who do we love? We love the brethren. We love those that are his. We want to be with those that are his. I'm going to tell you what. If most people that I know 
who have at one time or another professed that they believe the gospel, and I've had a ton of them, Kenny, in my lifetime, told me, oh, I love this gospel. I thank God he saved me sovereignly, and he was merciful and gracious to me, and he sent his son to suffer and bleed and die for me. And then to turn around and have people that claim to believe the same thing, have the same hope, rested in the same righteousness, the same blood, and not ever want to have anything to do with them, or be around them, or be in fellowship or association with them, and yet be in association and fellowship and friendship with the world? Something is wrong. <laughs> if they treated their spouse like they treat those that we just read a moment ago, Paul said, Behold, John said, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. They treated their spouse or their children or their brothers and sisters or their friends at work or at play the way they treat those that are the children of God that they claim they're part of the same family. You know what they'd be? They'd be divorced. Their children would disown them. Their friends wouldn't have anything to do with them, Kenny. Now, that's just true. We're exalted into this family of God, blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We, listen, we, every single solitary one of us, from the pulpit to the pew, from the least babe in Christ to the most full-grown child of God, we are fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. We are full partakers of God's promises, all of us. We're built, He has built, every one of you, everybody that's a member of this local assembly, you know what you are? You are a partaker indeed, and we are built together as God's children, as the very habitation of our God. Huh. Well, I, I'm not important. I, all the members are the same. Huh? Ever had an ingrown toenail? Hmm? You ever did like I, I, I saw pictures came up on Facebook not too long ago on pictures from the pad. It, it was you know, Google is what it was where my Google pictures at, and it brought up a picture of a big big picture of a big old purple toe. And right before Thanksgiving two years ago, I walked out back. We had them little cats, and one of them cats made me stumble, and I kicked. Uh, and I thought, boy, that didn't feel good. And I walked back in the house, and I, I had knocked that toenail so hard that it went back. Kenny went down under the, the whole thing. The whole toe swung. And at that time, I was walking. You're talking about hard to walk. You don't think, that, you don't think toes are important until something happens to one of them. Hurt a, hurt, hurt a finger. Hurt your, your thumb or your... This, whatever, which one, what's that? I forgot. Your index finger. Try to do something. I, it's as important as his arm it's attached to. Every one of us have a place in the body of Christ. All of us do. Equally loved, equally righteous, equally accepted. All of us come from the same place. For by grace are you saved through faith and not, not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Oh, we're going to get some introduction this morning. We're not going to cover any verses. I'm sorry, I can't do it. Because I got some things I got to say this morning, just got to be said. 
See, these truths that I've just talked about, this manifold wisdom of God, this truth that, that we are justified and righteous and holy and accepted, all members of the same family, it, it, it raises a question, an important question, that every believer should be skillful in answering. That's why I'm saying we're not going to get past this. You need to be skillful in this. Because see, here's the thing. Since we know that, that God loved us even when we were dead in trespasses and sin. Now you think about what I'm saying to you this morning. And we know that by nature we were under the guilt, penalty, and condemnation of God's holy law and justice. And since we know from the scriptures that God tells us himself that God hates all workers of iniquity. That's God's words, not mine. How in the world can it be said that God loved us and yet Him hate all workers of iniquity at the same time? Can you answer that question if I ask you that? Because see, a lot of false ideas have been born out of misunderstanding of that. We come to that idea that yeah, you people, when you talk with people that believe that God loved everybody, and Christ died for everybody, and God wants to save everybody. When you talk about God hates every worker of iniquity, they've come up with this little caveat. God loves the sinner, but he hates what? He hates the sin. What did I tell you a few minutes ago? How's the only way you can get sin out of this play? <laughs> By, this, Romans 5. How'd sin get into this world? Uh-huh. By man came sin. How'd righteousness get into this world? By a greater man. By the right man. By the arm of God. Now the first thing you've got, to, if you want to answer the question, because that's what, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help you be able to answer questions from your friends and your family. And the first thing we've got to understand that God's hatred his hatred of sin, it's not emotional. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? You know what it is? God's hatred of sin, it's an expression of his justice. That's what it is. That God's justice demands what? The full punishment due to every single solitary sin. Ezekiel said it twice. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, and Ezekiel 18, verse 20, he said this, the soul that sins, what happens to it? It'll die. Paul confirmed that in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, when he said, the wages of sin, what is it? Death. But here's the next thing. We have to use Christ himself as an example to help us understand how to answer this question. Now think about this. We, we know that God the Father has always loved his only begotten Son. <coughs> right? How do you know that? Because I've read what Christ said about it intimately in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He told us plainly that he wants God, us to know how that he loves us like the Father loved him 
And he says, you lovest me, how? Before the foundation of the earth. <laughs> and here's the thing. We know that the Father never loved the Lord Jesus Christ any more than when he hung on that cross, bearing the Father's wrath on account of our sins charged to him. Preached a message on this a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago now, three weeks ago for sure, with the holiday that was involved. Remember from Isaiah 53? Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Our Lord in the Gospels multiple times spoke from heaven confirming, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Always. Now think about it. Imputed sin, which means charged, charged sin <clears throat> to Christ, legally, made Christ cursed, guilty, and under the wrath of God is he actually suffered the full punishment for all the sins of all those he represented. It's, it's the, the first message I heard when the gospel sweetly sang to my ears. He made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And when Christ made perfect satisfaction, God's hatred was removed, but his love continued forever the same. I always think about it. Even when he had sin imputed to him, he was still that person of whom the angel told Mary or Joseph, I can't remember, called him that holy thing. Uh -huh. John Gill got it right, but his wording was wrong. He should have never said it the way that he said it. Or he shouldn't have put the commas. Maybe, maybe when they reprinted it, Kenny, they put the commas in the wrong place. He said, that, and I, I, some of these people get on this, Christ made sin in some way more than by imputation. They say that Christ, when sin was imputed to him, he became the great, and even in, in his commentary, in Gill's commentary, he said it. He said, Christ, Christ on the cross became the greatest sinner that ever existed. Does that sound right to you? That he, personally, became the greatest sinner that ever existed. Comma. There was a comma there. Because a guy that pushed this thing used to say, John Gill believed that, but he forgot about the next thing that came after the comma. Because Mr. Gill continued, which I don't even like that statement, he became the greatest sinner that ever existed. He was only a sinner by imputation. Mr. Gill put this statement next, but... And this is important part of the statement that gets left off. But only by imputation. Huh? He become a literal sinner. Sin was charged to him. Yet it did not change him. How do we know it did not change him? Was sin charged to him on the cross? What was his prayer for them? Huh? 
If it had been me or you as a sinner and we were suffering, what would we be doing? We'd be railing like those two guys were before God dealt with one of them by his grace. What did Father forgive them? For they know not what they do. And that wasn't to the world. It was, who's he wanting forgiveness? Because if it had been, been intended for every man and woman without exception, what we could do? We could have quit. Because they'd all been forgiven. Christ never prayed a prayer. But they all were forgiven. Who? Me and you were, our sins nailed him there. You listen to the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, therefore doth my father love me. Why does he love me? Because I lay down my life. What was he laying down his life for? Not for anything he had done. But for the objects of God's love. Our sin. He was our substitute and our surety. And remember about the ninth hour Jesus Christ cried with a loud voice. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say. That's it. Sin charge to him. All the sins of all the elect of all the ages, all the way back to Adam, all the way to the end of time. The fury and wrath of God falling on him, and yet he still calls him what? My God. My God. Why hast thou forsaken me? But in the same way, God's hatred of sin is not emotional. Listen, this is one that gets everybody. God's love's not emotional. See, you love me and I love you tragically, conditionally. Do we not? That's why believers get, even believers, get at odds one with another. And some of them just, they have trouble forgiving each other. I don't understand it. You know, there, there's a lot of people that I have a lot of angst against, but I would be willing to sit down and talk with them about it. And discuss it. It's conditional. I tell you, I, you, I tell you this much. I know I love my wife, and I know you love your spouse. But if they cheated on you, what happens? If it was unconditional, <laughs> what would it be? Right? Still love you. See, that's how he loves us, Kenny. When we go a whoring, his love never changes. Isn't that an amazing thing? His love for you and me as his children, as we are seen and viewed in Christ Jesus our Lord, it never, ever changes. I think one of the biggest cryouts I ever got back any message I ever preached was when I said one time that King David was as loved of God when he had Bathsheba in his arms as when he was when he was singing before the dadgum Ark of the Covenant when they were bringing it back. And people lost their minds over it. <laughs> Listen, John. Think about it. God's love. You know what God's love is? It's his purpose to save his elect conditioned on who? On Christ. This is one of my favorite verses. People say, well, define for me the love of God. Okay, here's love. Here's the definition of love. Not that we love God. You hear people, you sing it in false religion. 
What's the song we sing? Oh, how I love Jesus. Remember that one? Here ends love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us. And because he loved us, what did he do? He sent his son, the propitiation for our, for our sin. And see, this is the thing. God's love is made known in the fact that he chose a people out of Adam's fallen race. And he conditioned all their salvation on Christ, their representative. And he sent Christ into this world to fulfill those conditions and secure the salvation of the object of God's love. And it can properly be said then that God loved, purposed to save, and glorify those who, according to his law and justice, what were they? They were condemned. They were enemies of God. Under his just wrath what his law demanded. But in an incarnation and mediatorial work of Christ, you know what? God's love provided what his holy justice demanded. That's the good news of the gospel. Listen, we're closed. Although God's elect are saved from before the foundation of the world, in the purpose of God, and in the person of Christ, you know how we come into this world? We're born into this world guilty. Why? Because God's law requires the soul that sinneth, what? It'll die. We're defiled when we're born into this world. And he's already told these Ephesians, you and me included, that we were by nature children of wrath. Just like everybody else. Before regeneration and conversion by God the Holy Spirit, our persons are condemned. Our works, what are they? They're works of iniquity, just like everybody else's. Before the Lord met me and humbled me and brought me by His grace to see that all my righteousness is in Christ alone based on His obedience unto death, every sermon I preached at Heiko Baptist Church, you know what it was? It was worse than the sin of homosexuality. Let that one sink in. And see, the natural mind can never see that. It thinks, oh, that's just foolishness. You better understand this book. You're going to deal with this God one day. This God will by no means clear the guilty. That's as much an act of sinful rebellion as the worst sin you can ever possibly imagine. You think about this, Saul of Tarsus, the most legalistic, law-keeping, religious man that ever existed. By his own words, he knew and understood after he met Christ on the road to Damascus that God viewed all of that as what? Sinful rebellion and idolatry. And listen, God hated it. He did and see, here's the thing. As long as we owe a debt to God's law and justice, we're the enmity against God. And at that time, it can properly be said that what God's law demand? Condemnation. And that helps us to see the necessity of true conversion 
And it makes us to see the infinite importance of the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's the only thing, His righteousness alone, the only thing that removes the curse and the defilement of sin. The writer of Hebrews put it about like this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that's not my believing. What's that faith? It's Christ. Without, without Christ, His blood, His righteousness, clothed in, robed in, wrapped in it, whatever, everything that we do, it's impossible to please God. Because he says this, and this is what I looked it up this morning just to make certain before I, before I said it. When he made that statement there in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, he says, Without faith it's impossible to please, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is. Now, first of all, we won't come to him. So if you've come, how have you been? You've been drawn. Must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And Romans 3 says there's none seeks after God. In other words, those born of God, you know what? They're like that woman pressing through that multitude. And in her mindset, she tried every single solitary thing she could to get healthy. And she was none the better for it. And she thought, if I can but get to him and touch the hem of his garment. And there was a throng. There was a multitude. And that little old weak woman that had an issue of blood for 12 years pressing through that crowd. And when she touched him, what happened? Immediately, she was healed. I'm telling you, salvation's instantaneous. It ain't some progressive thing. When we see him and we know him by God's grace, we're healed. By his stripes, we're healed. We'll stop right there. We'll come back. We'll pick up with verse 1 next week. I appreciate your presence. You're dismissed to worship.